Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Today's guest on Cover Stories with Chess Life is one of the authors of our January cover story on the 2022 U.S. Championships. And she is also, breaking news here, starting a regular column for the magazine. She is the woman who loves penguins more than anyone with the purple hair, WGM Tatev Abrahamian. Tatev began her chess journey at age eight in Armenia. After winning medals in European Youth Championships, she moved to America in 2001, where her success continued. She has played in every, um, at least to my eye and my quick scan of chess base, every U.S. championship since 2004, with no small amount of success, although it must be said she's not yet succeeded in taking home the first place hardware. Tatev has also been a stalwart member of our International Olympiad teams and world, uh, uh, World Team Championship teams including our 2022 team that competed in Chennai, India, where her teammate, WGM Gulrukbegim Tokir Genova, who uh, I spoke to just a few weeks ago, she reported on that in our December issue. Tatev scored seven out of nine to help Team USA finish in fourth place, just off the medal podium. Tatev is currently a brand ambassador for ChessUp, a smart board startup from Bright Labs in Kansas. Now, as a long, uh, long-time mainstay of West Coast chess, uh, she is now a Midwesterner, uh, enjoying our winters <laughs> as she makes a move from Kansas City to St. Louis. Breaking news there, too. We'll ask what it's like to be thousands of miles from the ocean and to have to keep her chess level uh, while making a big transition like this. This month's issue of Chess Life also sees Tatev's first column on getting to work where, at least at first, she'll offer a number of how-tos for chess improvers looking to work on their own games. Uh, Personally speaking, I'm super excited to see her join our team, um, and I'm uh, really looking forward to trying to use some of her tips to to fix my own terrible chess. Tatev Abrahamian, welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life. From where am I speaking to you today? Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Right now, I'm in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. So you have escaped... Uh, the Midwest winter, just as it was finally getting nice. Yeah, I finally escaped. Unfortunately, I got stuck in the Midwest because of the flight cancellations and everything. But I'm happy to be back in California at least for some time. Yeah, we were just talking about this just before we started recording. You were <laughs> one of the people who uh, was on Southwest, and and you're still here and you're you're alive, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. I think the worst is behind us. Um, I was supposed to fly on the 24th, which is already risky, and then got canceled, moved to 25th. And um, I was actually lucky I was able to reschedule my flight. And uh, I was able to play yesterday on the 29th. And you are up and awake and uh, 
Beautiful. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I have to ask, so, you know, you, you do a fair amount of traveling. Um, do, does the two hour time difference make a difference to you? Um, yeah, actually a little bit because it was already like 10, 11. I was starting to crash a bit. And then today I woke up kind of early. I woke up around seven. Yeah. I, but, uh, yeah, I think as you get older, this, uh, this makes, starts to take a toll on you. Yeah, it, it, this is even even when I go. You know, I grew up in New York, and even it, it's just an hour difference. And my wife just berates me every single time because I keep telling her, "Oh, I'm so tired. I, you know, this jet lag." And she says, "John, it's an hour." I said, "Well, yeah, but you're younger than me, so you know, it yeah, does." It's easier. It's easier in one direction. I forgot. I think it's easier when you go west, right? Because you have to stay up as opposed to go to bed early. So I think that's easier. I I, I just struggle with it no matter where I go. <laughs> no matter which way. Doesn't make a difference. Um, yeah, sometimes like I'm good with it. Sometimes I'll travel to like this ten hour, eight hour difference, and sometimes I just like adjust so quickly. And but I remember one year I was playing this Reykjavik Open was like eight hour difference, and the whole tournament I wasn't able to fall asleep until five. So I would sleep from five to one, and then play at three o'clock. And like the whole tournament, I just couldn't get over this jet lag. So you're talking about eight hours from California? Yeah, I think it's eight hours from California. Because I think I think one of the reasons so many East Coast people like the Reykjavik Open, besides it being in a beautiful place with you know uh, high standards, um, is that it's it's a relatively easy flight from New York. Yeah, it's actually a five-hour flight. I think it's like faster to fly from New York to Reykjavik than from New York to California. I yeah, think it's a quick flight. Yeah, from East Coast, it's very easy. And yeah, it's like such a great tournament, great location, great conditions. One of my favorite events. That is, that's one of my bucket list tournaments. So hopefully, I'll get to play it someday. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's talk about the U.S. Championship because uh, you you uh, wrote a a really nice piece about the 2022 U.S. Women's Championship won by Jennifer Yu in a ridiculously memorable playoff. <laughs> um, you, uh, you, you finished a plus one, so you were in shared fifth. Um, what, what, what are your impressions of the event for, for you personally and sort of more, more broadly? Well, this time it was a 13 round event. So I already knew it was going to be a long marathon. It's the longest tournament I played in. When I started playing this world juniors and Olympiads, it was already only 11 rounds. So I've never played such a long tournament. Luckily we had two days off, you know, that kind of broke the tournament down into parts. And overall, the U.S. Women's Championship has been has really changed over the years because before it was just basically Anna and Irina, and sometimes I would do well and finish like second, maybe tie for first, but they would just beat everyone. And now it has become more equal, so now more players have a chance to win, and we do see uh, we don't really have someone just completely dominating like we did uh, when it was between Anna and Irina, and we have like a lot of young players and. Um, I feel like that's another thing that's changing because when I was playing maybe even 10 years ago, whenever we had a young player qualified to be as women, I feel like they'd be so intimidated and they would just um, like emotionally or mentally, they would um, not perform so well under this kind of pressure, you know, with all these cameras and all this attention. And I've, I feel like this younger generation, they're, uh, they can really fight and they don't get as intimidated even though they're on the big stage. So I think that's one of the big differences. And of course, we do have some players missing, like our junior players, Carissa, she wasn't playing to defend her title. Annie Wang hasn't played in years. Emily also hasn't played in a couple of years. So unfortunately, we're missing some big names from our national championships. It, um, as an outsider, I, I was very impressed by the, the sort of fighting level of the games. You know, they're, uh, in the Open Championship, sometimes there it feels like there's some quick draws and, um, you know, uh, 
sometimes it feels like people are holding back a little bit. Uh, in the women's championship, it is like doggy dog. It's um, it, it, it does it feel that way to you that that, it, that there's a very high like fighting quotient, if that makes sense. Well, okay, so there is no so they made a rule so you can offer draws, and I think when you're a especially like the higher rated you are, the easier it is to like kind of make a draw, right? Because theoretically everyone knows things, they know like how to find a repetition. And I feel like the lower, like the lower you go, the harder it becomes to just kind of feel like, okay, my opponent is repeating or my opponent's playing something equal, but like going down the trash path. So people keep playing. And as you keep playing and making moves, like things start to happen. So I think that's like the no draw rule affects our tournament way more than uh, the open tournament. Mm. But yeah, in general, there is a lot of fighting and people do score a lot more points. And then I guess another part of it is when you see someone scoring a lot of points, like one year when Jennifer scored 10 out of 11, you see someone going on the streak, then you're like, okay, so if they start going on the streak, maybe you know it's time to try to stop them because maybe you won't have a chance later on. Yeah. Um, you, you were, um, as you relay in the, in the, in the article, uh, you were, uh, watching the playoff with, uh, some of the other participants with, um, mm-hmm. with Fabiano and, uh, Maurice Ashley was there. Mm-hmm. Um, talk, talk a little bit about that playoff because I, I think if people didn't watch it live, it's, it, it's, and there's so much chess has already happened since, you know, October, um, it's it's almost like we've forgotten what what a crazy playoff that was between Jennifer and Arena. Yeah, that that was really intense. Um, so actually, when I was um, watching the game between Anna and Irina, I thought Irina because she was pressing, and I think Anna was under time pressure. So I thought Irina would be able to convert. And I thought there'd be no playoffs. And then we're like, okay, playoffs. And the, like, and then another thing, like, I didn't know the time control. So I thought Irina would be like a really heavy favorite because she has so much experience. But the time control was like 15 plus 10 and then Armageddon. And I was right. like, okay, so now it becomes more equal because as the time goes lower, then the probability of something crazy happening goes higher. So then it becomes 50-50. Yeah, so it was me, Fabiano, Begim, and Maurice, and we're just sitting right outside, like, the commentary room. So we could hear Christian talking, but we're also, you know, so we're actually watching it live because there was a delay. So we're just watching it live, and Maurice is, like, in this commentator <laughs> So he's just like, okay, like, uh, you know, Irina needs to do this, and Jennifer, okay, she's doing a good job. She's taking Irina out of her comfort zone. And we're, like, we're watching this first game, and um, in the first game, Jennifer wins. So we're like, okay. So she wins and um, like, I mean, there's nothing at stake for us, but you know, it's exciting to watch a playoff because you know, you're a chess player and you're watching something exciting and um, you just kind of get invested in it. And, um, and then we're kind of like, okay, let's uh, figure out like before even the playoffs, we're like, let's see, okay, who's the favorite who's going to win. And was there, uh, and was the there second, any, was there any betting? Was anybody sort of laying odds or, or no comment? Uh, no, no, we weren't betting, but um, like uh, they after the final round, uh, Christian and uh, Fabiana they recorded the podcast. Actually, they did a live, so they were talking about it. So originally, I said I thought Irina was like a heavy favorite, and then once I found out the time control, I was like, okay, it's uh, closer to fifty-fifty. And um, yeah, and then the first game happens, and the second game is just like so. Okay, like it's just so chaotic. It's um, 
you know, like this common error is like this time management issues. Like we see like, uh, all of a sudden Irina gets her kind of position that she likes and then like things get complicated again. And then like the, they get super long time. And at some point, like Jennifer, she just grabs her knife and like you can see in the video that she just like doesn't know what to do with it. Cause she's like, oh, if I move it, like, like she grabs the wrong knife basically because her knives are hanging. So she has to move the other knife to defend. And she's like, I don't know where to put it because if she puts it some like the pieces hanging and then she puts it somewhere and the, keep, the game keeps going on and then she's getting attacked. And then again, like at the end, she like makes a move that um, she gives up a queen and she resigns. And now we're like, oh wow, Armageddon. And we're like, after the first game, we're like, okay, now she's doing well. Second game, things change. We're like, she's still kind of in control. But then all of a sudden, Armageddon. And actually, I was actually trying to think back when is the last time we saw Armageddon in the Women's Championship. Um, and I, I couldn't remember it because I have played in playoffs and I had an Armageddon game, but it was when it was three players and I played an Armageddon against Anna and that allowed me to go to the next stage and play against Irina. But I don't remember the last time uh, the US Women's title was decided in Armageddon. I think maybe it was the infamous Anna and Irina game. I was, I was wondering if that was it, yeah. Yeah, I think it has to be it because I cannot remember. There haven't been that many playoffs and I think it had to be that one. Mm. This was, uh, the, I think in its own way, this was perhaps even more memorable than than that one. Yeah, like this Armageddon game was crazy because, so they did a coin toss and then... Jennifer decides to choose black, which really shocked me because the time control is five versus four. And I think the lower, the less the time is, the more it favors white. And there, so there is no increment until move 60. And the both in both games, white won. So I was like, mm. you know, white is winning. Like, why, why are you betting on a draw? So I was like, okay, you know, she chose black. And then like the game is going. And then all of a sudden we see this like, Bishop G4 move and we're like, it's like shocking, you know? And then you see like instinctually, she just kind of tries to take it back and Irina's like, no. And uh, and it's not like she's trying to cheat or anything, you know? It's just kind of like in the moment, like sometimes things like don't really register in your brain. Like you don't really understand what's going on. And you know, that like <laughs> I just hung a piece. And sometimes, I, I don't know. I think it's just like the adrenaline and like the tiredness and everything. And so she has to play this move and then we're like, okay, this is over. And you can see her disappointment. And like, you know, it's just like everything is on the video. Everything is in coverage. So like you see these emotions, but then she's like, you know what? I'm just going to keep playing. And like later she also said, like, she never thought of resigning because, okay, she, I can resign now or I can resign like in 10 more minutes. So it's a difference. And then we kind of tune out and then we're like, come on, like, how could this happen? Like this happened in her game against Irina. She's like, like she hung a bishop there and now she's hanging another bishop. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, we're just talking and then we tune back in and then this Bishop H2 happens. And then we're like, oh, that's a chance because even though Irina is clearly winning, but now things are complicated. And also Irina was starting to get behind on the clock, even though she started up a minute. So and all of a sudden things get complicated and, and then game keeps going. And um, everyone with experience knows if you're losing, if your position is bad, the longer the game goes on, the, the more chances you get because you know it's like a decision making for your opponent and you're losing so it doesn't matter if you lose now or 10 moves later and like but every move it's like a decision for your opponent and an opportunity to make a mistake so whenever you're in a bad position you know if you can just keep the game going it just increases your chances of saving your game so much yeah and then this game keeps going and then Irina is getting lower and lower in time and all of a sudden 
like uh, Jennifer finds and starts checking. And then Irina goes, uh, was it King Jivan to G2 or King G2 to Jivan? She leaves her king under attack. Yep. So this was like, you know, the second incident in the game. So the Arbiter is called in. They give Jennifer more time. But now, um, now Irina has to make some moves and she has like seconds on the clock and we know she's not going to make it. So she just runs out of time. And um, that's how the title was decided. Abs- I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to see that sort of, or, or to be there alive for that. And, and uh, I, you know, even, even just watching it on the stream, it was, I mean, it was, it was like, my heart was racing watching it. It, it was, it was just so bizarre. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we don't expect this kind of things to happen, but I think it's just exhaustion at that point of like yeah. adrenaline, <laughs> like so many things, like they played 13 games and then two more games and then this Armageddon and like in Armageddon, like, there's the nerves, the tension. Like we're watching the world rapid and bullets, right? We see like so many blunders happening. Well, and, and and even, you know, I mean the, this, you know, the, the Carlson rapport game that happened today, um, you know, where Carlson was like, the engine's giving him like, you know, he's minus 15 or something. And then he still, he manages to win it. Like these are the sorts of things that happen at these short time controls. Yeah. Short time controls, nerves, exhaustion is this combination of things just leads to this kind of mistakes. But yeah, and then like after it, like Jennifer comes into her room and then she was like, you know, I just decided to myself, I'm not going to lose twice, like with the same Bishop Wonder. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you, should, you know, you should, uh, like, there's no reason for you not to fight. And like, even like when we were watching in uh, the broadcast, like you see, like she goes through this emotion, like she can't believe what just happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I blunder a Bishop on move eight and now I'm a US champion. Um, and the great thing, uh, I think it was, I think it was Leonard uh, who who had photos of that? Um, you're who, who you are one of his favorite muses, by the way. Um, as as someone who spends a lot of time looking at the St. Louis Flickr account, there are there are quite a few photos of you in there. Um, but yeah, he he did a great job of sort of documenting that moment, and and we could find photos that would literally show the progression of the emotions. Uh, and we we put that in the issue in like a a film strip sort of format, and it was. Really, really a nice thing to be able to do. Um, hats off to the photographers at St. Louis. They always, always do a great job at, at providing us with with photos for what we need. Um, so, anyway, uh, let me ask you about the 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 sort of subtext of the of the event. And and you know we can't really avoid talking about uh, what I've started calling the Neiman affair uh, as as part of the 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 color of the tournament. Um, how did how did all of the the speculation affect the tournament from your perspective? Um, I I don't think it had a great effect on the tournament. Maybe it had more of an effect on the open section. But I think a lot of the players, at least some of the players, were happy with the new anti-cheating measures. I think having the thirty-minute delay provided uh, some level of comfort because we cannot avoid this threat of cheating in general in chess. So I think players were actually happy with this um, extra measures. They had more scanning and I guess people <laughs> kept being late even though, you know, they like, we knew that it takes longer to get scanned and the 30 minute delay. So I, I think actually um, it gave, gave comfort to the players. Um, I'm, I won't ask you about your, your specific views on specific cases, but I, I did want to ask you about the, the, the the general questions that are being raised right now. Um, mm-hmm. Do you do you see the threat 
of cheating as as sort of being a real threat to high level chess? Yeah, I mean, I think this is just a huge threat to chess, maybe like even existential one, because I think there is a lot more cheating than people like to admit, that people even comprehend, and um, it's like in open tournaments, like I think. Like, I don't even know how people combat this kind of threat, like what the organizers do. And I think there's a lot of issues. Um, so whenever I see this discord, like, I, I, this is like, uh, this is something like I um, feel very upset about, like cheating in chess really upsets me. And um, whenever I see this discourse, I, I just see so many things wrong with it because like people are always like, okay, provide evidence. And then I look at a game and there's like 2,200 player who plays like first line of Stockfish the whole game. And I'm like, like, what kind of evidence do you want? Like, this does not happen. Like, someone that at that level does not play first line of stockfish for 40 moves and makes no mistakes. But, like, the problem is we don't have this definition of what constitutes evidence. This like, is... Th- like, short of finding someone on their phone in the bathroom, like, we'd have no agreement. And then if we look at, like, what they're doing and what FIDE is doing... Like how many cheaters have we found? Like besides outside of Rouse's, and I think there was another recent one. Uh, like statistically, it just doesn't make sense, right? Like if you think about how many chess games, Peter rated, PSCF rated games get played, and how many cheaters have been caught, it just doesn't statistically just makes no sense. So, so there's way more cheating, and like it's just like my like the question is like who is trying to find cheaters? Whose interest is, is it in to find cheaters? The organizers actually want to find cheaters because then there's a shadow cast in your tournament, right? Mm-hmm. Does FIDE want the responsibility? Does USCF want the responsibility? Like, who wants to take the responsibility of catching cheaters? And what systems can we have in place that you can submit a game and be like, okay, like, look at this game, this rated player playing Stockfish, really complicated moves, like, non-obvious moves. Like, how can we do this? That we have some kind of a general consensus that, yeah, in this game there was cheating. I, I I think you just said a lot that is really very important. And as someone who is sort of on the periphery of the chess world, um, it's been very of like the professional chess world. Like it's been mm-hmm. very interesting for me to hear multiple titled players now be willing to talk about the things that you're that you're speaking about here, um, because it feels like before this was something that you guys probably talked about amongst yourselves. But the general public and, you know, readers of Chess Life and even people like me who, you know, I mean, I go to St. Louis and I, you know, I I was in the room for the first round of the St. Field Cup. Like, I have no idea. Um, And so if anything, you know, you you can say what you will about Carlson's vibe check, for lack of a better word. Um, But but it feels like he thinks he's taking a stand here on exactly the sorts of questions that, that you're raising. Yeah, I feel like at some point you kind of, you know, lose your innocence because at some point I just thought like, why is people so worried about cheating? And then actually, like it happened to me in a tournament that I was sure like one of my opponents cheated and like nothing came of it. And then I was like, oh my God. And then I just started to realize there's just so much of it and it's just so hard to do something about it. Like, uh, okay, recently I played in a tournament and there was like scanning and everything, but I was like, okay, they scan you once. And then if you just go on, <laughs> if you hide your phone somewhere and then go get your phone, they're not going to scan you again. So you just have to go through one scan and, you know, you can go around it. And I think it's like in a big open tournament, it's just so easy to do. And um, 
yeah, I don't know how we're going to combat it. And I, I didn't know how the top, I mean, I, you know, being on the US team, like we're so lucky because we have access to so many great players because there's so many top players on the US team. So, you know, we can talk about them, like these issues. And like, I actually don't also didn't realize what a big issue this was for top players, but this is the problem, right? If someone really strong figures out how to cheat, it's going to, and how to, get away with it it's going to be such a huge problem because when i look at like someone 22 2300 cheating this is kind of obvious because <laughs> at least from my point of view if you're 2200 and you get a, like a plus three plus four position and then you start playing on your own chances are you're going to make a mistake you may not win the game so you kind of have to keep doing it yeah but like if someone's super strong you know it's not even like they have to get fit move, moves like like even small things right if you're like if a really strong player is taught like oh, there's something to look for in the position, like instantly they find it. It's just like this little hint. And so, yeah, this is, I think, a um, huge issue. And like even in open tournaments, like I don't, like I don't understand, like I don't know what what needs to be done, but I, I think this is a huge issue. And, and it happens way more often than people admit or want to admit. And sometimes when I hear this discourse, like when I open, Twitter and I see people talking about it and like part of me is like, okay, you're not qualified to be talking about this topic like this <laughs> because if like there are people who are just like so passionate about it and in my mind, I'm like, if I showed you a game by right, 2000, 2200, an engine, like there, you cannot tell the difference. So like, why is there so much noise and so much of it is just so irrelevant to the, like the actual discourse? Well, I'm... I'm interested to hear you say these things. And I, I think this is going to be a conversation that I, I, I mean, I think this is, this is the conversation in the chess world for the next couple of years. Um, so, you know, I mean, I know USCF uh, has some policies in place and when people are referred to the ethics committee, um, normally their, their names aren't publicized, but I know there have been punishments handed down. Um, but I mean, maybe it's where we have to name names. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the answer is, but it's, it's, it's really interesting and it's, it's, it's troubling to hear you talk about it in this way as sort of an existential threat to, to the game we love. Um, yeah, that's a bit of a downer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but like, it's real, you know, we cannot ignore it and it's tempting. Yeah. Like if you're, you know, and like I, I've seen, like I've had incidents with my students and, you know, I just like, okay, you know, they're kids, they're not like, Top level players, it was COVID, it was online, like it was a hard time, like mentally, like so many temptations. Like, you know, I can try to like kind of work through it, but it's just, especially online tournaments, it's just so easy to do. And it can, once it starts happening in like over the board tournaments, then um, like, what are we going to do? Yeah, all bets are off at that point. I mean, it does happen in over, not once it starts happening, it does right. happen in over tournaments. And it's like, I mean, again, like statistically, if we like, intellectually think about this what is the likelihood that in all these years there's been um i forgot the french guy who was like very public case um oh uh hello hello sebastian so the, the the gms in the olympiad um it's not no, no, it's not sebastian um i can okay i can't remember his name but that was 2010 olympiad right and then we had rouses and then there's this recent case so yeah, we had the, like the belgian three, am like yeah. the past 12 years so you're telling me like in past 12 years, we had three people who cheated. I mean, it just doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. 
yeah, no, there's, it, it is a real problem. And, uh, yeah, as I, I said, when I talked to Ben Johnson on the perpetual chess podcast, I mean, this is how we deal with this is really, I think going to be, you know, this is, this is going to be the task for chess organizers and for, uh, for federations. I mean, for, you know, for us chess, for FIDE, um, how we deal with it is, is going to be really, really important. Um, yeah. let me, let me, let me move on a little bit. Let me, let me ask you, you've played in so many U S championships. Um, mm-hmm. do, do any of them stand out to you at this point? Like looking back, were any of them particularly memorable? Um, memorable in what sense? In any sense, good, bad, indifferent. Um, I don't know. Good location. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, okay, so before we started playing in San Luis, uh, okay, one year we played, I remember we played in San Diego and it's uh, the permanent home of the US Chess Championships. And then, I mean, like San Diego is a beautiful city, but we're like by the sea, by the ocean. And it was like the very last time it was held in San Diego. And uh, that was and that was one of your first ones, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, I want to say 2006 or maybe 2004. I mean, there was some kind of, a, like, there have been some experiments, especially with U.S. women's, because uh, it was like a qualifier, so it was like um, round robin, and then it was a mixed event where the highest scoring women won the title, which, like, I don't, I understand, like, it's probably better for the women to be playing in this mixed event and playing with stronger players, but you cannot determine a winner in such a way that, you know, it depends on the last round pairings. Like one of them is leading and then plays a GM, loses. The other one is half point behind, but like plays someone like 2300 wins and then wins the title. Like you cannot determine a champion in such ways. So I, I mean, I think it was interesting to play in those kind of tournaments, but I don't think a winner should be determined in such way. Uh, and then the US Championship. And then the US Championship moved to Oklahoma. There's like uh, not a lot of sponsorship. But then once we started playing in the um, San Luis, of course, it was a well-organized event and uh, really high price funds. I think this year's will be very memorable, even though it wasn't a very good event for me. But I don't think I will ever forget this playoff. Um, and uh, for me personally, I think 2019 was one of my best performances. I really, I, I like, I, I started with um, half out of two and then I had a really nice comeback. And 2016 also memorable for me, but for a very painful reason because I was just leading for some of the tournament at least, and then like I just completely choked in the last round and didn't get the title. So I mean that always like I that one I cannot I, I cannot forget. I um I wanted to ask you about 2021 because um you you made a big change in that tournament. So you have been famously an E4 player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden you busted out closed openings like night F3 and, mm-hmm. and people thought it was a transmission issue. So what was, what was the reasoning behind making that biggest switch, especially at the U S championship at, at such a high level event? Well, I mean, I was zero out of two and it's like, there's really no coming back out from zero out of two. I mean, okay, last year I had half out of two. That's not that much of a difference, but also my play was really bad. And um, it was also a difficult time for me because I had started uh, just working a full-time job. Also, there's something personal. And I was actually at some point contemplating of dropping out of the US Championship, but ultimately decided to play. Uh, so yeah, I said zero out of two and 
first game, I lost to Begim, and mm. I literally have made in like four moves, and then my brain just completely shuts down, and then somehow I lose. Then I lost like to Chris, so she just completely crushes me. So at that point, you know, like the level of my game is just all over the place. Yeah, and uh, at that time, um, my coach, who was helping me during the tournament, he was like, okay, tomorrow, like no more preparation, just play night after day, try to play freely. And in that tournament, I actually played, experimented with some other openings. I played 1d4 against Ashrita, and um, I kind of started varying my repertoire a bit. And also, I think it's a bit of a reflection of the current state of chess, because it used to be that, you know, you had to know, like, prepare your openings really well, and and just in general. But now, like, we see that everything is basically playable. If you look up any openings, you would see, like, top grandmasters they just play everything so much chess gets to be played and so many things get to be played i think you can play your openings a little more freely now you can either try to prepare something and then get a playable position and just play some like night at fbb3 or like some kind of a system and get a playable position so I, I think um I, I think it's also a reflection of um, how chess has changed over the years so i there, there's a lot to unpack there um <laughs> and i i really i really like what you were saying about the sort of the nature of the opening changing at the professional level. Mm-hmm. Um, because on the one hand, I mean, you, you know, you hear Carlson talking about how he doesn't want to play a world championship because basically the memory requirements are too much, but that, that might be a different beast entirely, I guess that, you know, on a, on a normal professional player level, there's just too much to memorize and too much to do even in a, in a closed event. And so, you can play more freely. Um, but, but I'm, re- I'm really surprised to hear you say that basically you were just sort of like spitballing it. You were like, had you done preparation in those openings or were you really just sort of going out there and just winging it? Um, no, I mean, I we did look at something in night of three and like, you know, over the years, like different coaches have told me, you know, like play something. And like, if you, I, I think it's harder to do now because there's, uh, so much preparation has been done in license. Like, if you don't know something, just figure it out over the board. Which, if you're playing something sharp, of course, it's risky. Mm. Um, but this is something like coaches have told me over the years. Another good advice I've had for coaches, if you, from coaches, if like if you forget your lines, don't try to memorize it. Just start calculating it because when you start memorizing it, then you half memorize it. Because at some point you get too frustrated, and then you're just like, oh yeah, this looks familiar. You play something and it's just completely wrong. No, I had some preparation done when I played one. Like the thing about my uh, opponents is also in this tournament, they also, you know, we're not like this super versatile 25, 2600 level player. So everyone kind of has their systems. So if you surprise your opponent, it's not like I go 1d4 and my opponent is an IMSA player, all of a sudden they're going to be like, okay, I'm going to play the King's Indian for the first time in my life. I'll probably play something in their preparation and okay, I'm an IMSA player myself, like against Ashrita. I played D4, she's a Nimzo player, I'm a Nimzo player, and I was like, okay, she's going to play something, it will look familiar, and we'll play. She played some theoretical line I wasn't very familiar with, but then she messed up, I got a good position, ultimately I didn't win, but um, it's also kind of nice, and um, especially now that I've been thinking about my chess, and sometimes, you know, because I just play things so consistently, it does feel like I started getting bored. I was talking to another player about this, and she was also like, yeah. I switched from E4 to D4 because I was starting to get bored. I played the same line and I'm like, I have to play this again. Uh, so I think, uh, especially now, it's so much easy to experiment with openings. And this is very different from 
what what I was taught when I was growing up. That's like, you know, you learn your systems, you learn them really well, and then you play them. And, um, you know, like we all, like I say in my column, like we all have to adjust to this new, uh, new the new ways that chess is being played. That is a great segue. You're like, you're like a professional. <laughs> I just did the work for you. I, is, oh, I, I can't tell you how much <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, let, let's talk about the column because I think, I think we just got a really good sample of what you specifically bring to this project. You know, I mean, we have some really great authors doing columns for us or writing for us. Um, but you are an active player on a very high level, playing internationally for the U.S., doing, you know, preparation on a very high level with coaches, but also, you know, playing Swisses and uh, playing in norm events and and trying to work on your own chess. So what what are the sorts of things that you're hoping to talk about in the column? Like what 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 can readers look forward to? Uh, yeah. I'm, um, so like one of the things that's also like the first column I wrote, it was also like my own reflection of my own chess and as a chess coach and, you know, someone who's been in the chess world for so long and talked to players of different levels, things that I read, things that I see, it's like a lot of people just don't know how to study chess and there's just so much information out there. And I've had this with my students too. Like sometimes I do a lesson and they, show me a game and they played something and I was like, where are you playing? And they're like, well, I've seen a video on this. And I'm like, who's video? And like, I don't know. I saw it on YouTube. So, and, uh, you know, they're like, they're kids, so they cannot really differentiate what's entertainment, what's um, educational, what's for their level, what's not for their level. So I think that's just like, see if one, see if information and like kind of have to navigate through it because there's just so much stuff. There's like books and there's courses and there's videos and there's so streams. There's just so much. And I think it's very hard for people to kind of like break it down and to study chess properly to like kind of manage expectations, know how to prepare for tournaments, know like how to handle all these things. And, you know, as an experienced player and also someone who has to rethink her own chess, I think, um, I think that's what I want to try to help the readers with. Let, let, let me let me push you a little bit on that. Why? What is it about? And and if this is too personal or or whatever, that's okay. But why why are you rethinking your own chess right now? Is it is it results? Is it are are you just dis, dissatisfied dissatisfied with the way you're playing? Is it is it that you're coaching or you you know and, and trying to think of it from that perspective? Well, to the end of 2019, before COVID, I was at my peak, and actually no. I was at my peak oh, already there. I wasn't at my peak, but like a few years ago, I was at my peak and now I'm at my lowest possible rating. I lost a like hundred points. Mm. And um, yeah, I think because chess has changed so much and we have to adapt to these changes. And I don't think I have. So like when, um, you know, when you're playing tournaments and your results are constantly bad, you have to reflect on what you're doing wrong. Part of it is because I haven't been working on chess seriously. And this is something I used to be able to get away with because I always worked really hard at the board and I had a lot of, like, you know, I have knowledge from studying chess before and from this experience. But now I feel like the level of chess generally has gone up and I don't have this advantage that I used to have. Just showing up kind of unprepared and winging it and still like getting away with it because now everyone is studying, everyone has this access, everyone is playing a lot. Like, um, I think people are playing so much more chess and they're improving 
whereas before they didn't have this much access to playing. So whenever you have this kind of, you know, so many bad things happening to your chess, you have to reassess, like, what is it that other players are doing that they're getting better and why, why am I gradually getting worse on chess? So I think part of it is just, like, I haven't worked on chess properly. Like, you can you just can't, no longer can get away with not working on it because you're playing someone lower rated, they no longer collapse, they know how to defend, they know how to play end games, they know like openings, they see this top level game. So like everyone has this access now and people don't even play tournaments over the board. They get better by constantly playing online. You know, you play someone 2200 rated USCF and their blitz rating is like 2700. Uh, so like there's this mismatch and um just like how chess has changed, like as I said, like everything is playable now. So you just, um, you know, it's it's good to re- reevaluate. Let me uh, let, let me ask you a little bit because um, I know we're man, we're forty minutes in, and this is uh, I, I don't want to keep you all day. Let me ask you a little bit um, as I alluded to in the uh, the opening. You are uh, currently a brand ambassador for the Chess Up Board. Uh-huh. Um, and you were in Kansas City with Bright Labs. Um, you are now. Uh, making a move to St. Louis, uh, breaking news. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the chess up board and, and what that's all about. Yeah, it's a smart chess board and it has, uh, so when you touch a piece, you can use different levels of assistance. So the piece will light up and uh, the squares that it can go to will light up. And depending on the level of assistance that you choose, that uh, it lights up according to strength. So it can tell your best move, your worst move. So if you know if you set it to lowest le- lower lowest level, then eliminate your blunders. So you can also, if you have um, players of different strength, you can make the match more level. And also, there's leeches connectivity, so you can play like a leeches game and you can play it over the board. So I think the biggest benefit is you get to play on physical board, which I think a lot of people prefer. I, I know a lot of people play online, but um, a lot of people also like to play on a physical board. Yeah, this is actually this is actually one of my projects for the next couple of days. Um, so my friend John Watson, mm-hmm. um, he he actually sent me his. Uh, he has a he had a DGT board, like one of the mm-hmm. one of the DGT boards that you hook up and you can use on Lee Chess, or um, and he sent it to me, and and I'm going to try to do that. And and for exactly the reasons that you mentioned, um, it feels like if I want to improve my over the board game, it would make sense to play over the board games even while online. Um, yeah, for, for me personally, like this actually makes a huge difference. Like when I'm reviewing my openings, and if I like just play through on my through my opening on the um, like on my computer, like it sometimes it doesn't stick. There's just something about moving the pieces that mm-hmm. like actually makes such a big difference. And maybe it's a genera- generational thing because these newer generations they just play online and they just do everything on the computer. But like if I actually move the pieces and um, like review my openings on the board, it makes me helps me with memorization better. And like you also think about the position differently. Like you actually start thinking of them calculating, whereas if you're looking on the computer, you're just kind of playing through it. I mean, this is something I was actually going to mention in one of my columns. Like I think doing a puzzle, solving a puzzle over the board, like before the tournament starts, before the game starts, I think is just kind of helps your mind to kind of get into this tournament board. You're like, okay, now I'm sitting, I'm going to be sitting in front of the board and I'm going to be solving problems. I think once like nothing like crazy, some crazy complicated thing, but like once 
you have a physical board in front of you, you set up a position and you solve it before the tournament starts. I think it helps you like kind of get into this tournament mode better. And this is something I do when I have this one round the game tournament. Like during US championships, like I'll pick a study from my study database and I try to solve something before um before either the match starts or before I start my preparation, just so my brain starts thinking about like is this the, sitting uh, at a board and solving problem. Yeah, is this the Vanderheiden database? Um H H it has to be, right? There's yeah. this that's the big one, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that's um, anyone who's interested in studies um, should definitely. Harold Vanderheiden, uh, who is the editor of um, EG, which is like the Endgame study. Uh, do, you su- do you subscribe to that magazine? No. I, I'll, I'll send you a link afterwards. You, you might want to consider it if you're into studies. It's really, it's like the, the you'll, every, every three months you get a little magazine like with Ooh. like 80 studies in it from all over the world. And uh, Karsten Mueller has a column in it about like studies for practical players. It's really, really nice. Um, but yeah, uh, this is really inside baseball. Here. <laughs> um, I love solving studies. They're just, I think when you do too many, too many of them constantly, then sometimes like you look at a position, you try to find like weird things in a position that don't exist. But I think for creativity and like for calculation, they are so helpful. And I just like, I just love doing them. All right. See, we got uh, we got a tip here for everyone. Uh, do do some end game studies and uh, and it'll it'll perk up your chest. Um, all right. So l- let me ask you a little bit about the the Olympiad. I know we talked about it some. Um, mm-hmm. wh- what you know, we every every couple of years the Olympiad comes around and we we hear about it and but I mean, so few people get to go and and even fewer people get to play. Wh- what is it like to to be in that situation and playing for your country? Yeah, the Olympiad is my favorite tournament. It's just um, such a celebration of chess. You get players from all over the world. Like you don't get this kind of um, representation that you know every country sends their team and everyone is so happy to be there. And you know, it's like for some countries who don't have so much access to tournaments and where chess is not very developed, you know, it's their one chance to be playing in the same hole as like Carson, Caruana, and. Um, it's just such a thrill to see this, to see this kind of level of excitement, to see this level of joy. And um, it's just like, yeah, like every time I get invited, it's just like such a big honor to be in this environment. And um, like our women's team, I feel like it's just the same thing for us over and over. Like every year we perform really well, but we always come up short. And um, yeah, this is another thing that we need to think about. And actually in 2020, there was um, talk to St. Louis Chess Club and they, like in the beginning of 2020, we had an email that we were invited. Our team was invited. They said like dates because they have this classic tournament. So they're going to invite our team and they're like a Scheveningen tournament. We're going to play like other five or six players. And the way Scheveningen works, it's like you have six players on one team, six players on the other team. Like everyone, like all, every member of your team plays every member of the other team. So we're going to get like this practice tournament is um, against like probably like 2,500 average. And then we're going to have a training session, but then (laughs) COVID happened. None of this happened. And I think this is something that our team really needs. So we can finally medal because every year, like 2018, we're played all the top boards. We played China, we played Ukraine. We're doing so well. And then we lost within medal this year. We didn't start so well, but at the end, you know, we just completely crushed this Indian team, like three, one, completely one uh, no, completely I mean, one-sided match. Like they never had a chance in this match. Just 
such a nice win for us with Cruz, but because of our poor start, we didn't medal. And, you know, like every year, like going to this Olympia and <laughs> fighting hard and coming up short, um, it's also a bit disappointing. I, I have to ask, um, is the Bermuda party everything it's cracked up to be? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just really nice because like literally everyone goes there. Like I read that uh, Sokolov like forbade the... Uh, was like team yeah, I saw, I saw that in, in the New Chess article. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny because, like, you know, we went, like, our team, there's like other players too. And then, like, Caro and I, it's just like constantly people are like, can I take a photo with you? Can I take a photo with you? At some point, it was like, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> because, it'd be, like, for a lot of players, like, again, for us, we're spoiled because we got to the Olympiad and, like, we had breakfast with, like, Levon and Fabiana, like, every morning. And then in the evening, we have dinner together with teams. And then we talked about this game for a lot of players. They're like, oh my God, I'm in the same hole as like Arana. And then Magnus showed up and then you see like, you know, it's a party. And then like Magnus shows up, he goes to the bar and then it's like people like swarm towards the bar. Yeah. And he just like gets completely crowded. Everyone's like taking photos and videos. See, it, it's funny because I was just reading, you know, at the, at the Rapid and Blitz, I guess Magnus is like the only player who has a separate room he can go to. And there was some, there was some griping about this because apparently he has he has access to a phone in there and you know you can't really there's no there's no ability to prepare at the rapid and blitz but people were saying mm-hmm. oh he's preparing but but if you think about how he must be mobbed like I can totally understand why he would need to have a separate space to escape um, because the, the photos coming out of Chennai of, of of Magnus being surrounded were just I mean he was he was like he was like a rock star. Yeah, yeah. Especially like the like okay, like you know, chess is um, India is such a chess country. So it was like really great to finally, you know, for chess to get this kind of coverage and this kind of respect because chess is just so respected in India and you know, in Armenia where I come from, Mm -hmm. like chess has the same kind of level of respect. So for me, it's like normal to see it. But I think I feel like this was on another level. There was so much media, and when you're like because we're playing. There's like usually two playing calls for the Olympia, like top 20 or whatever teams play in one room. And then the other, the rest of the teams play in like a different playing hall. So we're always in the same like hall as like the Norwegian team. And whenever like Magnus walks in, like you can kind of feel like a shift of energy because like all of a sudden, like everyone starts going like towards that board and you're like, okay, Magnus will be here. Cause like all the energy is like shifting towards him. Like, yeah, he definitely has a presence that, um, you know, some kind of, um, vibe to him that's um people also find attractive yeah it, it's um yeah definitely check out the the live stream or the or the, the recorded live stream or some of the photos from the event because it's Todd, you're, you're absolutely right it's it was fascinating to watch even from afar um let me ask um about future plans because uh so you know you are right now you're you're enjoying your holiday in in sunny california mm-hmm. but you will be coming back to the midwest and coming to uh to st louis uh, making the move there. Uh, what what is what what are future plans for you? Do you do you expect to play a lot? Are you going to be coaching? Uh, you're you're going to be writing for us, of course. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, writing my column. <laughs> uh, but so so so, what's what 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 do the next couple of years look like for you? Um, actually, I don't know. This is a bit of a period of uncertain uncertainty for me. I don't really have anything uh, set. I don't have any plans. Uh, I do want to work on my chess a bit more. 
And I think St. Louis is a good place for it. There's just so many chess players, so many opportunities to work with others and play over the board. And one thing that online chess has helped us with is made chess more accessible, but chess is still over the board, is still very concentrated right now in St. Louis. Unfortunately, like when I was younger, there's so much more chess in Southern California, so many more tournaments, grandmasters playing. Unfortunately, this no longer exists. I think being in St. Louis in that regard would be good for me. Um, as far as like professionally, like how am I going to make an income? That's uh, nothing is set in stone. But you know, the chess world I think now has a lot of opportunities to offer. So uh, I will be exploring some options. Outstanding. Well, that that leads into the next question. If if someone wanted to find you, perhaps for uh, coaching or something along those lines, assuming you will, because uh, I know you are coaching some right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Assuming you are looking for more students, potentially, how should someone reach out to you? Um, they can reach out to me on Twitter. My username is Satev. I think it's two underscores. A. I think the one with the one underscore was taken. Yeah, yeah. so that Twitter, I check. Unfortunately, I check my Twitter pretty. I think we're all in the same boat. And, and until until the whole thing burns down, we're all we're all strapped to it and just waiting oh, for the ship I, to I sink. I can't wait until the whole thing. Burns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. This is the love hate relation, and and yeah, you know, it's funny because you know you certainly had a name like a, a name in chess before, but you know, I mean, I, I have to say, like, I I feel like my career, so to speak, you know, with US Chess and also uh, like Twitter helped a lot with that, and and I'm like on the one hand, it's it's kind of, there's a certain amount of Schadenfreude to watch it all sort of go down, but. I'm also kind of worried. There's a lot of content creators out there who who really made their who made themselves on social media. And yeah, yeah. I mean that landscape has also certainly changed. But I, I'm starting to hate a have a live paid relationship with Instagram because I see these reels and some of them. Sometimes I look at them and I'm like, this is so stupid. And like I get so anxious, but I cannot stop. So I just keep like because you know it just goes from like 30 seconds to 30 seconds. It's just like this dopamine hit one after another. Even if it's negative, it's still like. It just like sucks you in. So I'm just like half an hour later. I'm like, why am I watching the stupid reels that I know are fake and stage? And that's that, that sounds like me playing Blitz at like 1 a.m. and and just losing and losing and losing, but I can't quit because that's it's it's, yeah, it's the same that's, thing. That's yes, I guess this is like Instagram tilt. Instagram tilt. I think we've created a new phrase. <laughs> it's it's going to enter the vernacular. Uh, the vernacular. What am I? I can't even speak today. Uh, let, let me let me finish. So, Tatev, um, I know you've listened to at least one uh, edition of this podcast, um, but we always end by asking some questions of our guest. And uh, this, I don't know, have, did you ever see the Inside the Actors Studio? Did you ever see that television show? No. Okay, so there was a uh, this guy James Lipton who who created a, a questionnaire, and he would ask all these famous actors and actresses when they when they came to his show. Um, it, it originally was rooted in something Marcel Proust had created years and years and years ago. So I've taken Lipton's version uh, and and changed a few questions to, to make it work for a, a chess podcast. So uh, in just a few minutes, because it looks like you have some pressing issues. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, <laughs> l- let me ask uh, James Lipton's chess questionnaire uh, modified for cover stories. Tatev, um, what is your favorite word? Yeah, I did listen to Peggy, so I think I'm going to steal her answer. You're going to steal her answer. Okay. Her answer. So I think her answer to this was love. Yes, it was. You're going with love. Okay. 
Um, what is your least favorite word? Um, I actually don't remember her answer. Did she say hate? Sounds like something she would say. I think okay, was... just let me think about it. Actually, a word that I like is committee because it has so many double letters. Really? That Because it has like three double letters. Do you play Scrabble? Or no, do you... I play Wordle. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. This is, this is why you're thinking about it like that. Yes. Um, okay. So committed. That's a good word. So least favorite word then? Uh, least favorite word. Uh, I can't say hate because I use this word very freely. Uh, I don't know. Fair enough. We'll pass. Um, <laughs> what is your your dream of happiness? Uh, dream of happiness? Oh my god! Like the kind of life I envision, or anything, what whatever comes to mind. My dream of happiness. Thing, if I can stop being so hard on myself and finally feel free, I will be happy. Boy, um, I'm going to guess no few of our listeners can agree with that. I that, that certainly sounds like something um, that would be a good dream of happiness for me. Um, hashtag, hashtag what? Self love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> towards towards what faults do you feel most indulgent? Towards Say it again. Towards what faults or flaws do you feel most indulgent? Um, maybe like binging, mm. feeds, social media, or like anything that's wasteful. Any uh, any TV shows? Have you binged any TV shows recently? Um. No, I, I, just, I just watch the same things, honestly, over and over. But it's just like, I'll just like binge and it's just like so wasteful. Who would you like to see on a new banknote? Wow, I never thought of this. Um, I have to think about who do I like. It's like such a short thing. <laughs> 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 Shots fired. Um, <laughs> Um, say like <laughs> oh, how about another chess player? Let's go with a chess player. Um, oh, not Fisher. Who's a good American chess player that we like? See, in, in Armenian banknotes, we actually have the grandpa Christian on a banknote. Yeah, a chess player. I can think of who. Think that'd be good for us. Mm, we, we, I'm really failing at this question. That's right? okay. That's hey, it's uh, it's still early out there. It's uh, I'm I'm with you. Don't worry about it. Um, what opening do you love? And tell me, it's the French. It's not. <laughs> the French has caused me so much pain. But yet we keep um, doing it to ourselves. I, mean, I know. I'm. I'm you know, as I mentioned, my friend John Watson. He, you know, I, I learned the French. Well, some of the French from him. I, I won't give him the full blame for all of my flaws. But I mean, I keep banging my head against it, and it feels like you do too. What is, what is it about us French players? It's you know we'll, we'll just enjoy pain. We're masochists. That is probably the clear, and that should be in the book. Uh, that if you're a masochist, you will like this opening. Um, um, no, the opening that I actually love is um, 
I don't know, in like in, like E forty five, Night of Three Nights to Six, D four E D C three. Ah, like the Scotch gam- uh, the Scottish Gambit or the Scotch Gambit. Yeah. Why Why do you love that? I used to play this as a kid. It was just like so fun to play. And if your opponent just takes your pawns, you get these bishops aiming at the king, and uh, you know, like the aesthetic of it. That sounds like it might be a a, a nice column for chess life, like how to play that and why you should do it as a young player. <laughs> why you shouldn't. <laughs> Either or. <laughs> I actually played it when I was like 22, 2300 level player. I mean, okay, now you cannot get away with things, right? Like someone will turn on the engine, the engine will tell you what to do. But I, I used to play it and like some, like I've had some nice games with it because people would be scared to take all the pawns. W- would you still play it in Blitz? Yeah, I, I play it sometimes in Blitz. Sometimes I have nice wins. Actually, this might be one of the openings that maybe the engine says it's like slightly worse for white and it's playable. It's actually interesting to look at it. Like that's the thing. It's like really interesting to look at things with uh, these newer engines because the assessment is so different. Yeah. Well, again, a, a, I think we have another column topic. Um, what, what opening do you hate? Uh, the yeah. <laughs> uh, The opening uh, that I hate. Um, maybe... That's an opening after. I've done so bad with like so many openings. Um, like the panko I haven't done with. I can't say that I hate it. Like maybe the banani. I don't really like that opening. JJ Lang, if you're listening, uh, Tatev just broke your heart. He he is. Uh, JJ works for uh, US Chess now, and he's a a big banani advocate for reasons that I don't fully understand. I guess E forty five. That's another opening to hate. But what can you do? That's like entirety of chess. You can play the Scotch Gambit. Yeah, there you go. They <laughs> <laughs> just solved it. It's, it's great. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, what profession? I think something like where I can make things with my hands. Maybe like making jewelry hmm. or like. I don't know some kind of craftsmanship. Okay. What what would you what profession would you not like to try? Uh, anything medical. Why? I just cannot stand blood, pain, any of it. Yeah. I just cannot tolerate it. Same boat. Yeah, blood. No, thank you. Uh, last question, Tatev. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Mm. Oh well. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's where I'll be arriving. I think you maybe feel like you're in the wrong place. <laughs> um maybe like yeah, I mean you've been a good person. There you go. Well, I I, I think your chances are better than you think. Um assuming of course these things are there. I'm, you know, who knows? Uh, Tatev, you have successfully navigated the questions, um, and you know, just personally, I'm I'm really excited that you're joining the the Chess Life team. Um, I'm excited to see what you're going to be able to do, and I think our readers are really going to enjoy your perspective. So, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I hope you enjoy the remainder of your vacation before you come back to the snow belt here in the Midwest. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great talk. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.